and welcome to Fuzz on Film. This is one of our Compare and Contrast episodes, following on from our recent LA episode, in which we covered the seedier side of LA on film. We're going to be talking about LA Takedown and Heat, or Heat and Heat, as you may want to describe it. Or indeed, LA Takedown and LA Takedown. Yes, indeed. First of all, introductions, I guess. I'm Drew. Hiya. Over there, Scott. Hello. And over there, it's Craig. Well, hello. Michael Mann's Heat, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Pretty well-regarded film, quite famous, very successful financially. I think what perhaps a lot of people don't realise is that it is, in fact, a remake of sorts. Back in the early 80s, after the success of Miami Vice, Michael Mann was supposed to produce a crime procedural for NBC and decided that this screenplay he'd been working on for quite some time, which would later become Heat, would make for a good pilot and trimmed down his original 180 page draft to something that would make a 90 minute pilot. The story of both is pretty similar and is based on the true story of a Chicago criminal gang and the story, if you don't know it, is that a very, very professional gang of bank and armed car robbers come into Los Angeles and the police want to stop them. There, quite straightforward, right? So what you're saying <laughs> is there, there are cops, but there are also robbers. Yes, that's it. There, there are cops and robbers, Scott. There are vast numbers of similarities in two films. Both feature a police lieutenant called Vincent Hanna, in one case played by Al Pacino, and the other by a man who isn't Al Pacino. Scott Plank. Scott, <laughs> Scott Plank. It's just an unfortunate name. Scott Plank. <laughs> well, fitting as it happens. But... <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, we'll get on to that, but, but in one of these films acting is a strength in the other film not so much <laughs> a challenge <laughs> something to aspire to an unmet challenge yes <laughs> so we have police lieutenant vincent hanna of the lapd robbery homicide squad and then the leader of the crew of robbers in the case of heat neil mccauley which is in fact the name of the real criminal that the story is based on and in la takedown patrick McLaren. McLaren, thank you, yes. Patrick McLaren. Somebody's looking at the Wikipedia page. I'm not at the time. <laughs> no, I just remember. <laughs> and as a, the main plot goes, it's not so convoluted. The first robbery we see the gang do is of an armoured car, and the new member of the squad that they've brought in for this job, Wayne Grow, is a bit of a twitchy git, and decides that basically one of the security guards was looking at him funny. So he kills him, but with Macaulay, Stroke, McLaren being professional at their job, they realise that, well, now they have to kill everybody. And he then attempts to kill Wayne Grow to punish him, but he gets away. From there, it just goes that uh, an understandably perturbed Wayne Grow starts uh, working against the gang and tips the police off mm. of what their current plans are, leading to various scenes that you've seen, you know, some... Uh, echo of in heat like the the shootout in the, the the streets of LA and so on and so forth until it gets to a conclusion where the the head cop must meet on the the head robber. I think this does have one slight edge over uh, heat in the way it resolves things. Whereas in heat you get to, to kind of shoot out at the end around about the airport. In this one, it does have uh, Scott Plank super kicking a guy out of a window of a hotel room, yeah. which <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. is a, a significant upgrade. That's a, that's, a, 
<laughs> it's like at the tail end of the 80s, 1989, it's like finally saying goodbye to that kung fu cop, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Lethal weapon, everybody had to know kung fu and all that jazz. So it's kind of like seeing, seeing out the decade <laughs> quite roundly with a roundhouse kick. <laughs> You're right, what a resolution. I guess that's possibly as good a place as any to sum up LA Takedown. It's just a bit laughable. Yeah, mm. it's weird to... Yes, it is both produced and directed by man as well as being written by man. But even if you'd seen them the other way around, if you'd seen LA Takedown first and Heat, um, which I suspect most people haven't, <laughs> if they've seen LA Takedown at all, if they're even aware of its existence. Yeah. But it's weird. Heat is this very, very professionally, slickly produced film, iconic mm. in many ways. and Visually resplendent. Ellie Takedown feels like some sort of B-list hack tried to just copy Heat. It's the strangest thing. There, there was not yeah. one bit of Ellie Takedown that feels like a Michael Mann film. Funnily enough, uh, it was only a couple of days ago that I watched Ellie uh, Takedown and it felt for all the world. Budget aside, it's hard to fathom that this is the same director mm-hmm. making essentially the same film six years apart. Yeah, it's yeah. not a long time. It's not like you did it, it you know, feels, 15 years later or something. It's honestly, LA Takedown comes across like, and it's not like Michael Mann didn't have experience yeah, by it's this not, point. It wasn't the first time because he'd done Manhunter and Thief and things beforehand, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It really, honestly, a lot of the time feels like a student film. Exactly, exactly yeah. the words that were in my head. A student, a student film version of a condensed yeah, it, heat it is like someone just trying to make their own like they're trying to copy it as maybe even as yeah. a a learning experience like how do we do this and we, and because it's so lacking in well competence basically but it's so mm-hmm. lacking in vision and style for the most part and it mm-hmm. and again yes it if this had been michael mann's first attempt at making a film then it would be absolutely understandable he said far better films before that and it's it's strange that it's strange that the other films are so much more competent. I mean, even from pretty much the off in this one, where it starts with like an establishing shot of the, the LA skyline, then pans down to the mm. uh, truck that they're using to overturn the the car, just as in heat, pretty much. But it is the the junkiest, sugariest yeah. pan down that I've ever seen in in what's supposedly a film from a professional filmmaker. Yeah. It just looks like your dad would be doing it with a camcorder from in yeah, Disneyland, isn't it? It's not. Necessarily, things that come across through. I mean, it's okay. It was produced as a TV pilot. Steve, obviously, they had a fraction of the kind of budget that he'd be working with for something like Heat. Sure. But technical, in terms of technical funding, like technical competency aside, yes, just a human being's ability to pan a camera down <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> seems. <laughs> and all right, um, Heat was uh, was it Dante Spinotti was the director of the DOP on uh, Heat. So, like, you, you get what you pay for, certainly. But, again, anyone who has any experience of holding a camera should probably be able to pan it up and down reasonably well. It's like <laughs> to this get that job. bizarre <laughs> disconnect. Remove, remove budgetary constraints, uh, you know, aside. It's not, a, you know, oh, it's bizarre. Really, really bizarre just how sort of cardboard set kind of feel this thing has to yeah. it. It's really quite shonky, really quite janky. It's weird. And it, it's, it's all the ease. And, again, yes, I know... We'll probably come back to this a lot, but I mean, it is the uh, the previous thing to it. It's early in his career. It's not like he dropped down from heat to this, but it's only six years apart. Yeah, he had done Manhunter and Thief and um, mm-hmm. created Miami Vice and things before that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember, I'm not hugely familiar with Miami Vice, but I don't remember Miami Vice ever looking so terrible. And 
I mean, one thing that is perhaps some reason for this, although not an excuse because this is terrible, but Heat was shot in 107 days and mm-hmm. LA Takedown was shot in 19. Okay, so that's that's certainly going to make... never notice. That's certainly going to make a big difference, but yeah, it's... It's like first every take, first take. Yeah, first and only take, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. You've got a constraint on time and budget, okay, but it just seems to be lacking in basic competency. <laughs> that's the thing I kept thinking during this, like... Is this everybody's first day? And what's happening? It's a weird one. I mean, so much of man's work is um, dependent on atmosphere. um, Mm. And he works really closely with his musicians. He works really closely with his cinematographers. And Heat is probably the pinnacle of his canon in terms of both visual and audible achievement. And the atmosphere throughout Heat is phenomenal. But it's not enough to, to remove... It's a strange thing that... Yeah, Elliot Goldenthal's scoring heat is something else as well. It's just phenomenal. Very much of its time and place and very much specific to the kind of work that man does. It's definitely a man score. It's not an Elliot Goldenthal score. It's an Elliot Goldenthal score for Michael Mann. And that generates a huge amount of atmosphere. But if you strip, if you strip that score out and if you take away you know, the the competency of Dante Spinotti's cinematography, you're still not left with LA Takedown. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a re- there's a there's a real there's a real achievement gap and it is just really weird. Like I find it almost impossible to believe that it's a Michael Mann uh, a Michael Mann joint. Yeah. And yet there are huge chunks that are the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like the dialogue is identical in the same mm-hmm. f- the, between the two films, and yeah, occasionally it comes out of different characters played about a bit with which character speaks it, but by and large, yeah, it's, yeah, and, and the basic, huge swathes of it are copy and paste. It's dropped pretty much all of the subplots, but the central mm-hmm. plot is nearly identical. The order things happen is nearly identical, and yeah, the scene and you've, where you've still got the you've still got the subplot of Wayne Grove being a serial killer on the side. Yeah, although they never really explore that, but yes, no. Um, but yeah, it's still there. But yeah, the central plot and nearly all the same, and they're like sort of really very memorable sequences that are well not exactly in the same location. They are they're played almost exactly the same way, although obviously in the case of Ellie Conf- Ellie take down not as well. But mm-hmm. um, like the scene when Hannah realizes that they've been set up that what they were yeah. looking at was them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one's in that very photogenic shot of the container yard of the um, docks, and one's mm-hmm. just some dingy run-down shopping district but other than that I mean, it's ba- it's the same scene it just happens to be a different yeah. place and it's so weird that two different takes on exactly the same material can be so different yeah from the same director yeah. i mean appreciably again quite often you you get what you pay for and when you pay for al pacino and robert de niro to be your leading men in a film well, certainly during the 90s, at least. I mean, it's debatable now as to what sort of quality you could guarantee. Um, but during the 90s, yes, that is going to buy you a certain amount of uh, of headroom to work with uh, in terms of the talents those guys are going to bring to the table. But yeah, it's... Uh, I can't think where I was going with that now. I've lost my train of thought. Are you suggesting that they're not in the same league as uh, Scott Plank and Alex MacArthur? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. The acting well, is pretty awful in this, and Ellie Takedown has to be said. As you rightly point out, Scott, Scott Plank brings to the table something that Al Pacino never did. <laughs> super which kick. was just super kick. <laughs> oh, and also the ability to be part of the table. Well, that's it, yes. <laughs> He gives Al- a well-sanded performance. <laughs> Al Pacino, choose the scenery. Scott Plank is the scenery. 
That's quite a good one, Drew. Thank you. <laughs> so gracious. Who built this set? This wall's wobbling. No, that's Scott Planxer. Oh, okay. Oh, dear. I guess we kind of danced about it. Do we want to just give a bit of a recap of what what was added in Heat, apart from quality? Uh, just <laughs> quality, just quality in, time, like budget, acting ability. <laughs> in, in the event that people have not seen that. Probably the biggest difference between the two of them is that, very much like uh, Fast and the Furious uh, franchise, <laughs> Heat, <laughs> and to an extent, LA Takedown, uh, are built on firmly uh, and heat certainly spends a lot of its additional one hour 20 runtime thereabouts ballpark mm-hmm. figure it's about twice as long yeah it's about twice as long exploring the human aspects uh slightly more so we are treated to far more fleshed out characters not so much in terms of the police unit disappointingly but certainly in times uh, in terms of the robbers we get a lot mm-hmm. more backstory there about what their home lives are like uh these aren't cardboard cut out bad guys i mean the the film kind of wears on its sleeve and it's one of the areas where man scripts always fall down is when he's a little bit too on the nose with things like the uh the diner scene where our two leads meet over the table <laughs> and man we're just like two sides of the same coin aren't we yes so yes, yes we don't need you to say it quite so explicitly we do spend a lot more time with the criminals in particular learning about their uh, family lives because these are actual living, breathing people who are, to an extent, not so far apart from the good guys of the story. Although I would argue that they're not quite so close um, as the film would want to have you believe because at the end of the day, these are still people who are quite happily uh, going around murdering people when it doesn't suit their, their business all that well. And I would argue that's a, a fairly big stumbling block. <laughs> That's a coin with one very brutal side. (laughs) That's a coin you're only going to want to use to pay for something with a very, very specific side facing up as you hand it to the teller. But I think that's the biggest difference there, and it's one of the things that sets Heat so far apart from other entries in the genre, is the amount of time lavished on characterization. Although I've always had the argument, as much as I love Heat, that actually Hannah himself feels a little bit shortchanged, but we can probably talk about that in a bit. I've waffled on enough. Uh, other differences? I guess the other big ones that we kind of talked about with the subplots, uh, the main additional subplot in this comes from the bonds they steal in the first instance belonging to a, a shady operative called mm. uh, Roger Van Sant, who then also becomes a another player in this axis, but to be honest, not actually a major one. Um, mm. The subplot is there, but that is one of the things that, that struck me when watching Ellie Takedown, is if you took him out, it wouldn't really make any difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that that is perhaps the main one. As uh, who's played him again? That is William Fickner. William Fickner. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he uh, is understandably upset about having been robbed, and also puts a contract out on Neil Macaulay and his gang. So it gives us another accent to play off, and if nothing else, allows us to get Henry Rollins involved, which is always Indeed. a good thing. And can also say what a wonderful job William, the ever reliable yeah. William Fickner, does of. Uh, uh, being shot he does this wonderful weebly wobbly thing when he gets shot that is just it is a it's an it's one of those things that the ab repeat button on your uh, dvd remote was made for he's very gifable <laughs> he gives good gif <laughs> oh dear uh, and I guess there's also the subplot that is notable really only because of the guy playing him with uh, Dennis Haysbert, who later on becomes a 
who well he starts off as a, a, a ex-con who's working uh, as a grill chef in a dodgy uh, diner who then becomes their getaway driver towards the end and gets some sort of character. Probably, even despite his very minor role, even gets more character development than mm-hmm. every of the police members bar Pacino himself. So, yes, uh, there's that. Uh, and he, is, he does have a parallel in LA Takedown, doesn't he? Clarence Gilliard Jr.'s character. He sort of shows up, and, and during the shootout, he is again, uh, so during the bank heist that goes wrong, uh, again, doesn't he sort of suddenly appear as the driver, but I seem to have missed the point at which he came on board with the crew. No, that's it. He appears as the driver. That's it. <laughs> There's like the guy that, the equivalent of the Danny Trejo character in he mm. comes to the the diner says, I can't do this because it's my wife's cell or something. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. in the next scene, there's this guy sitting in the green t-shirt with an earpiece in his ear. <laughs> so they, yeah. they don't, yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. pay any attention. They don't mention him. He just he could be a taxi so, driver quite easily. I was going to say, so it's not just me then. He did just abruptly appear. He did just abruptly <laughs> appear, yeah. That's probably your main differences, which accounts for the bulk of the extra running time. But most of the extra running time is really more actual competent establishing shots yeah, and pacing um, and such like. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's allowing for actually building of atmosphere and tension. It's, Stakes, almost. Yeah, it's, even from the very beginning, you know, they're both starting that same way with using the rubbish... The bin lorries, um, can remember what they're called, they're bin lorries to take down that armoured car. And then... <laughs> Just thinking of her American cousins. Yeah. Even though they have... <laughs> bin lorries. Even though they have, like, they know they're on the clock, they're still, and it's probably played outside of real time, but in heat, there's the tension there, there's a the bit when um, Wayne Grohl shoots the guy, then... You see, like, you almost see the thinking going on Robert De Niro behind Robert De Niro's eyes, like, right, I know what I need to do now. I need to kill these people. And then that's just played out so tensely. And, and, and there's something about this type of LA takedown. It feel it's something to do with the way it's shot and it's cut. It feels like a music video played at double speed. It's the strangest thing. Uh, they, they just seem to rush through that with no tension at all. It's like, oh, this is what we're doing now. Okay. And it seems like maybe pauses for one moment when the guy loses his mask. Yeah, it's more in Nelly takedown. It's more because he loses his mask, but I feel like they they still do sort of wait a minute, but I don't know, just they do something. Ponder it slightly. That it does feel so like like they're trying to hurry through it. I mean, again, possibly for the purpose it was being made, maybe they were. But yeah, what didn't ring true about that was that the reasoning behind him shooting him was that the uh, the security van driver stood there with this stupidest eating grin on his face the whole time. Yeah. After he was initially told leave, you know, leave the guy, stop beating him around. And I'm not sure what security van driver, what person in the world in that situation, when there are still people with guns trained on him, stands and openly mocks them quite so what what there is to what there is to find so funny about the situation, because I for one would still be probably emptying my bladder at that point, I would imagine. But uh, something about that didn't quite ring true, uh, certainly. But yeah, I, yeah, it is a little bit more rushed than uh, than than heat, but that's heat in a nutshell, isn't it? It just takes more time. Yeah, it gives it the time it deserves, though. To... Hmm. I mean, you can see that it was made for television, LA Takedown, because it doesn't have that luxury of waiting, but it's all just done in such a ham-fisted manner. You know, 90 minutes still should be plenty of time to build lots of tension to give you moments for pause, but hmm. it just doesn't seem to have any. It's... Well, I think the time that Heat takes as well, and if you're thinking about that scene specifically, it also lends weight to the decisions. It's not just padding, is it? It does feel like 
you know, this is a decision that perhaps this crew have taken out of necessity, but still somewhat reluctantly. Mm-hmm. They've not just casually murdered these people. It is something that perhaps hasn't necessarily sat particularly well with them, but they are committed to doing it out of professionalism or what they perceive to be yes, professionalism. They are, um, yes, clearly they, they are the worst of people because they decide yeah. that it's okay to kill some people if it helps them get their job done, but they're not... Yeah. As so opposed not, to early takedown where it's it's nine it's the nineteen eighties and in films we shoot people just for giving it. Yeah, it's not I mean Wayne Grew is, but the rest they aren't mm. just like sociopaths, they're not just maniac killers or anything like that. There is yeah. there, it's by their own weird code, but it is still mm-hmm. like for a logical reason in their world. Uh, it makes sense. Yeah, and that and that in itself does distance them from just a sociopath like Wayne Grew, who mm-hmm. is just a serial killer. So it does, yeah, and that works better in heat than it does in LA Takedown, as, as everything pretty much works better. Which is not to say, can I say, it's not that LA Takedown wasn't, I know it's, it was kind of terrible, but it was still carried by a certain momentum. It's shorter, it's shorter running time. I can't imagine that padding LA Takedown out would have solved its problems. I think its abbreviated running time probably suited, and it was still sort of kinetic enough that it was carried along um, by its own momentum, I, st- I don't regret having watched it. I mean, it was bad, but it was kind of watchably bad. Yeah, there was still enough of a germ of. Maybe I'm just saying it because it's out of interest as a curio, actually, having been such a big fan of Heat. Maybe I'm viewing it more as a, a DVD extra than a film in its own right. It's kind of hard going to watch, um, largely because the acting's so bad. The rest of it mm. is bad, but the acting is, is a real stumbling block. That said, by the last. 20 25 minutes i was much more into it um mm-hmm. so i think by that point the story was carrying me along more yeah that's what, when yeah. people start shooting more and talking less <laughs> it kind of works better <laughs> and just a word on whatever that rifle is that scott blank took to the party for the <laughs> to, for the bank robbery <laughs> Everyone else is popping off rounds from little submachine guns and stuff like that. And Scott Plank appears with some sort of cannon. (laughs) (laughs) Just shooting, no way paying, in no way, shape, or form paying attention to his background. Like people, people two miles down the street were probably getting taken out by rounds from this damn thing that he was firing off. It was quite comical. Quite comical. But then when he did actually have. A need for maybe the extra accuracy a rifle yes. would have evolved. A little bit of ballistic eloquence. Yeah, yeah he, he did. He did switch his side switches to a pistol instead. Like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I need to be careful not to cut this child in half while I'm while I'm doing this. <laughs> oh dear. Ah, uh, but uh, yes, there you go. I suppose other things. I mean, are, is there anything? In, is there anything you guys found in Heat that doesn't work so well? Um, I mean, I'm actually not the world's biggest fan of Heat. Um, I, if I hadn't been watching it twice, I came very late to the party. I don't think I'd seen this for, certainly not when it came out, and sometime way into the 2000s before I saw it the first time. And if it hadn't been for podcasts, I would never have watched it again, to be honest with you. Um, really? It's, it's nowhere near my favourite Michael Mann film, um, and to be honest, I, I don't find all that much enjoyable in it. No, that's not fair. I don't think it's a bad film, and I can watch it fine enough. But I would never really want to watch this again of my own volition. I think it. I think it is. I know we're talking about the atmosphere, and the pacing of it, but for me, it is too damn long, and it doesn't have enough atmosphere to warrant <laughs> making me sit around for three hours watching it. The other thing that's always annoyed me on this is that specifically Al Pacino, <laughs> who I think 
for me, the, the character that he's playing should be playing at about the level of, of maybe 0.8 Scarface, whereas he's playing it at 1.5 Scarface. You know, he is just a raving lunatic for an awful lot of this film, um, which is the, you know, the Pacino way of doing things, and it's what you expect from him, I suppose. But it just it's never really sat all that well with me, and it, it came across like a, a cartoon character rather than mm. a, a police detective. It's strange that those very minor things are probably enough to puncture it for me. And when I wasn't taken in by that, some of the other things that I mentioned, like some of these side plots, I don't think really go anywhere and they don't mm-hmm. add all that much enjoyment for me. And it just felt like padding. You know, the, as I say, if you got rid of the whole Van Sant thing, it wouldn't really make a lot of difference. Mm. And there's a few other things like that that just it just doesn't seem to warrant its inclusion, to be honest. Yeah, I think the whole Van Sant thing stands to probably to reinforce how methodical Macaulay is, and then ultimately that his, you know, that that methodicality, methodicalism, <laughs> <laughs> that methodic aspect of his nature proves to be his downfall uh, at the point at which mm. he needs to just walk away. He can't help but tie up one meticulousness. That's okay. it. He can't help but tie up that one loose end. I feel like the Van Zant thing is there as a a bridge from the you know that speech that they have um, or the observations that they make to that ending, but I don't think it's strictly necessary. Mm-hmm. Like you say, I kind of feel like you get enough understanding of how methodical and how thorough a character Macaulay is yeah. from the rest of the film that you, yeah. you're right, you don't necessarily need that. On the topic of Al Pacino, I don't necessarily agree with you 100%. I feel like his performance for most of the film is pretty much in character uh, or in keeping with the character of a guy who has devoted his life to what he does and is just so worn down by it and the effect it has on his home life. But he's not able to walk away from it that he probably is just kind of emotionally a bit, well, Mm. on edge. But I think the scenes in which he does go Pacino, there are probably (laughs) only a couple in the whole film. But when he does that, I think you're probably prone to remember those more. I think it, it, it does kind of detract from the rest of it a little bit. My biggest gripe with the character of Pacino and as an extension of what we spoke about, the crew, um, sorry, the, the police squad not really being paid much more than lip service, which is odd. People people talk about this film in reverential tones, and I am certainly, it sounds like I'm probably closer to that that opinion than you guys. I think it is, I personally think it is man's best work, but obviously that's a, you know, utterly subjective uh, judgment. Um, but I do get a bit annoyed when people talk about how it's a, an amazing exercise in fleshing out the backstories of absolutely everybody and all the even the minor characters get because no, no, they don't. Mm. Some of the biggest characters under almost all of the police guys get paid absolute lip service. And yeah. there is yeah. the room to do more than that. And what annoys me most of all about the character of Hannah and what lets his character down most of all for me is that it's mentioned most in LA takedown in the speech that Hannah has with his wife when they're having the argument in the street. The analogue of which in this is where um, Hannah is having the uh, argument with his wife in the apartment. And some of the dialogue switches around, but one of the things, and I can't remember the wording, in Ellie Takedown, um, Hannah mentions the fact that how he essentially, he sees himself as beholden as a servant to the city almost, (laughs) and that he has um, purposely given his life to that. And it's touched upon, there's some of that speech is the same where he says about, look, you knew when we got together that you were not just you were going to be spending me. your life with me, you were sharing me with yeah. all the scum and all the, um, 
but in Heat, he doesn't actually make the point of, look, I um, I exist to serve the people of Los Angeles. That that's not that's not mentioned in Heat. That and it sounds like I'm being very specific, but Heat does a slightly better job of demonstrating that. And I think specifically of the scene where Wayne grows first victim, the young girl, the the prostitute is found dead, and when her mother arrives on the scene, the yeah. way that mm-hmm. Pacino consoles her compared to the way that Scott Plank does, which is both broadly broadly similar, but in Scott Plank's case, his Hannah, it's more about removing her from the scene, whereas with Pacino's performance with that poor woman, you get the impression that he's trying to keep her away from having to see her daughter in that state. Mm-hmm. He's consoling her, but it also feels like he's clinging on to her for consolation, like it's a shared grief. It's almost like... It's almost like therapy for him. Almost, yeah, he's seen too much. Just want to see this again. He's seen too much, and he he almost needs to feel that woman as much at that time as he is trying to give her someone just to just to cry on as well, mm-hmm. and just to pour out her grief on. It almost feels like he wants to be able to pour his grief out on her, and that's the closest you come with Vincent Hanna in either of these movies to being given some inkling as to the pressure he must be under as a result of that attitude that he takes and the burden that he feels. Mm-hmm. But it's not really, in a movie that runs to almost three hours, it's not really explored all that much more than that. And I kind of wanted to get to know him a bit better than that. I feel like by the end of the film, you know Neil Macaulay a lot better than you do Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. Or at least, not maybe a great deal better, but certainly more so. And I kind of want to know that uh, side of Vincent Hanna and his motivations more because it's not necessarily enough in a three-hour movie just to say you know I this is how I feel about this and my duties to sacrifice myself or if you're not going to explore the reasons why the character feels that way yeah or at least if you spend some of that running time fleshing out the other police officers more because yeah, mm. it really is one-sided it's like no you fleshed out the criminals but what about the people yeah. who are trying to stop you know the the good guys because they're not in this the your typical um, dodgy cop or anything like that they're just you know just decent cops trying to do the job and stop mm-hmm. murderers um, and I think briefly I suspect my feelings and heat are somewhere between um, Scott and Craig that um, I I like heat a lot but I don't think it's magnificent in the way that Craig does um, and probably I would give Scott's a bit too long but the last time I watched I don't remember feeling that so much mm. but it does you start thinking about it in the way we are just now it does feel like there is ample room to do more um, mm-hmm. and at the same time there are extraneous things to just to go back immediately to the scene where uh, the woman's been killed the prostitute's been killed by Wayne Grow. Like that whole subplot just seems entirely extraneous to me in LA Takedown it serves a purpose because and it's not even absolutely certain that it was Wayne Grow that killed her um, mm-hmm. You see her kill another person later, so mm-hmm. you guess probably, but you don't know. But it does, um, it sets up that with the job that Hannah does, it's when he then speaks to his wife after confronting that guy in the club, and he's mm-hmm. you have to share. I mean, so, okay, it serves a purpose there of um, something to like show like, the kind of things that he sees and that he's, he's so tired of, but he feels that he needs to do something. Whereas, and yes, in Heat, as you say, Craig, there's maybe you're seeing something of Hannah's character there that again he doesn't want to see these things anymore he wants to try mm-hmm. and catch the people that do this but the fact is Wayne Grow is absolutely irrelevant mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. don't understand why that subplot of him being uh, this multiple murderer is in there it's like yeah we already got it was the fact he was a bit of a psycho and then later on becomes a threat 
to them mm-hmm. because they tried to kill him. It didn't yeah. need any more. That Carter didn't deserve any more screen time. He's he's like the least incidental uh, or of the uh, characters on the criminal side, and he almost gets his own movies worth of backplot. <laughs> um, <laughs> he almost gets his own serial killer film within a police thriller. I mean, on the upside, it, it annoys me in both films as well how easily he escapes as well. It's like they're distracted by a shiny police car for a second, and then he yeah. vanishes into cloaking etherness. Exactly. <laughs> He activates his stealth camouflage. Yeah, yeah he predators his way out of there. And yeah. yeah. Um, just before I move on, I was talking of Wayne Grow though. Kevin Gage as Wayne mm-hmm. Grow, despite the fact he always looks to me very like Ted Levine, which is really confusing in a film that also has Ted Levine in it. Mm-hmm. But um, he's pretty sort of menacing and physical in, in Heat. Xander Berkeley. And then they take down, he's Xander Berkeley. Oh dear. It's not even Xander Berkeley. He's some sort of weird, mad, twitchy guy, especially that scene in the bar where he's in sunglasses inside the bar when he meets um, mm-hmm. Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa. And he's he's terrible. In, mm-hmm. in a film of some really bad performances, Xander Berkeley is truly awful in that. Well, that that the scene, uh, so again, a scene that's in both movies, the one where you actually see Wayne grow with the prostitute moments before he kills her. Yeah, Kevin Gage's performance is genuinely sinister. And yes, it's menacing. Genuinely menacing. It's, it's deeply unsettling. Whereas Xander Berkeley in that scene, when he starts having an almost sort of um, schizophrenic rant to himself on the <laughs> chair, I honestly just expected him to stand up and go... <laughs> It felt it felt like it was going to go down Looney Tunes, uh, sort of Looney Tunes comic avenue. I, it was really weird. I do I, I don't know how much of it is just you know looking at it now because Xander Berkeley is just a certain type of character to us. Then it just doesn't sit with us well, or just whether it's just bad casting in the first place. I think it's but bad he, casting because it's. I, I think it's bad casting, but he did, it was rectified somewhat in Heat because he did get the role of um, Ralph, didn't he? Yeah, he's a small in, role uh, in Heat. Yeah. yeah, he's got a small role in Heat, so it's almost like Michael Mann. I can imagine Michael Mann saying, listen, I know it was a complete mistake to ask you to play. <laughs> you made a, I got you to make a bit of a mug of yourself, Xander. I mean, uh, some things I don't, I don't particularly mind Xander Perkla. I thought he was absolutely fine in 24. Um, mm. But in LA Town, that's he's so woefully miscast i'm not buying him as a sociopathic serial killer yeah no, no i'm not um as a kind of um career-minded busybody almost in 24 yeah he works for mm. that but not in early take time but yeah. yeah to come or to carry on really rather craig your point and you were making it too scott about just the the robbers the bad guys get given so much screen time and the cops get nothing there's just there's just hannah everybody else is people who are in an office who happen to work as police officers and it's not the only time that Michael Mann's done a film like that, although mm. the other example I'm thinking of is really more probably accurate to the way the public thought about it. But if you look at Public Enemies, when it's basically fetting John Dillinger and the the cops and people like Christian Bale in it are not really given their due, and they just seem to focus on the, um, the criminals instead. It's like, mm. you're doing this wrong. These people aren't heroes. You do get the, yeah, exactly. You get the impression that he does sort of, um, well, I don't want to accuse him of hero fetishizing. I can't say either. Fetishizing. (laughs) Fetishizing, Um, yes. uh, The the bad guys, but there's enough evidence to suggest that, yeah, perhaps that's where his greater interest Mm -hmm. lies in terms of the characters he's exploring. It's something Scorsese does it right because Mm -hmm. clearly, when you look at something like Godfellas, Godfellas, Goodfellas, Goodfellas is the Catholic Church version. Goodfellas is uh, <laughs> Goodfellas. Yes, the story is about these bad guys and stuff. And I mean, you can't really make that film without almost glorifying it in some way, or at least making them the heroes. But 
um, Scorsese is so careful to show that kind of like these are like, in the way that he tries to do is to show that these are just like working stiffs you know they're they're doing a job um it just happens on the other side of the law from where you would hope it would be but in that it doesn't really say like focus on them as being like good people or anything like that and in the way that heat does and i don't know it's it's because if it was if it was more balanced i think it would be okay if they did mm-hmm. really explore the, the police in the show okay so yes these two two groups of people maybe do have to cross lines that they wouldn't want to cross to do what they think is their necessary for their job but it's not it's so uneven because it's so weighted towards the criminals and i i don't really care for that mm. Mm. Or at least I, I, I do care to understand if they are given or if the, the work of the uh, the good guys, for want of a better word, is given equal um, equal due. It does. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel like man int- is being intentionally ungrateful towards or derogatory towards the, you know, the, the police service, uh, the police force rather. But it would be nice to see him explore the tribulations from their side. If, yeah. if anything, I would rather their side showed more of the sort of procedural aspect uh, and the work involved in their side, just the, the, the routine. There's, again, there's certainly the time, certainly the time for it. Mm-hmm. And it feels like most of the, most of the criminal um, crew get their sort of payoff, um, whether that be sort of instant karma in the case of Tom Sizemore's character mm. or, um, uh, or you know, Val Kilmer's character having to walk away from his wife. Whereas if you think about character like Bosco, I think I think it's Bosco, isn't it? Ted Levine's character who in the yeah. bank shootout gets gunned down. No, um, Bosco's Michael Rooker. In Heat. Ah, no, so yeah, uh, Michael Rooker's Bosco in LA Takedown, yes. He's yeah, yeah. Swapping Heat. Um, but yeah. And, yeah, so Bosco's character anyway, I think in Heat, for example, he... He gets, I think in Ellie Takedown, his character gets shot, but it's, he might have survived. I'm not entirely sure, whereas in Heat, he's quite definitely I a think goner. they say, no, one of them dies in the hospital, the other's probably going to die, because when it ends in the hospital, mm-hmm. um, somebody's mother's there, I think. And That's the, right. Um, her, yeah. Then um, Hannah's wife comes in to comfort yeah. someone. So some of them, because he says, it's the last thing that, before the hotel shootout that Hannah yeah. says, I'm going to the hospital to basically see one of them die and wait for the other one to die. Yeah. But when d- that character has gone down in heat, there's no great sort of empathy from an audience point of view because I don't really understand who he was up until that point mm. um, in quite mm-hmm. the same way that I did. So when I feel satisfaction that Tom Sizemore's character is brought abruptly to justice, um, I don't really feel one way or the other about Ted Levine laying sprawled out in the street with a, an anguished look on his face as the lights went out. So, yes. But again, probably just labouring a point there. I mean, I, I think maybe you're right in less it's not so much that he doesn't want to give the police officers or due that he's just more interested in the criminals. Hmm. And that interest I can understand, but I, it does just so feel so uneven to me. And it, yeah, when it feels like they're being slightly glorified, it feels a bit uneven. But, yes. I think another problem with both of the movies, if I'm honest with you as well, is that, and it's a problem they both share fairly evenly because they essentially both share a script, is that man is often very guilty of stylizing his dialogue uh, in the same way that he would his musical score or his cinematography and there are scenes where people have conversations usually scenes which are one-on-one scenes Uh, it's usually a two-shot where people just speak in a way that people don't speak so again to go back to the the diner scene between uh, hannah and macaulay 
or Hannah and um, McLaren, depending on which one you're watching. I hope it's Macaulay. <laughs> and um, and also sort of the scene between um, Al Pacino and uh, Diane Venora later on in Heat, where they have the, the sort of the argument and that conversation there. The dialogue does not ring true at all. People pause and take time out to speak with, not necessarily an eloquence, but a sort of thoughtful stylization that just does not ring true at all. I can't, I, I, I don't feel as distanced from those characters at any other point in the film as I do in those scenes where they're just required to do very little than sit and talk to another person. Um, it's quite distracting and it's feels, it often feels awkward actually. Yeah, that was another thing that sort of struck me when you watch uh, LA Takedown, when it's had the when it's had the sheen that someone like a Pacino or a De Niro or even a Kilmer can apply to some of the dialogue when you're coming from the mouths of lesser uh, babes, it's uh, not quite so convincing where it's convincing in the first place. And maybe that's part of what happened when I watched Heat after LA Takedown and kind of reevaluated some of what was going on there. And the dialogue is a little bit... It serves the purpose that it needs to do, but it's, it, it's not realistic. It Some of it does sound fantastic, but yeah, it's not in any way something that people would actually say in real life. Well, most movie dialogue isn't, I guess, but it's... Yeah, in a movie that wants to deal with the realism of its subject matter, it doesn't ring true, particularly. If it was, uh, if it were a David Mamet um, movie, <laughs> it would probably sit quite nicely. Mm. Um, but it's not. It's a movie that's, you know, uh, visually and audibly aside, obviously highly stylized, and that's fine. That's an aesthetic but it's not an aesthetic that needs to or should extend to the dialogue in this case. If what you want to do is explore the lives of these people sort of vaguely, honestly, and, and frankly, I don't think they're going around having, well, they might be having those conversations, but not in those words. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's, everybody's Shakespeare in this film. I think that pretty much ties us up, doesn't it? I don't think there's much more to, to delve into. I think yeah, it does. Think. Yes. Uh, I don't know, can we just mention how weird Michael Rooker looks with hair, curly hair? Yeah, can we just talk about how long it took me to realise that it was Michael Rooker? <laughs> yeah. I was a good, honestly, I was a good sort of 45 minutes into LA Takedown before I went, oh, wait a minute, that's Michael Rooker. I don't know, um, I, I, so I had a, a case of mistaken identity for five minutes to start that film too, because I was like, oh, Craig's not going to be happy, that looks like Bill Pullman, but it was actually Daniel Baldwin. <laughs> first uh, five Danny B, Baldwin number five is in this. <laughs> Deary me, the, the last... Uh, this, Daniel Baldwin, the straw that broke the camel's back. I, I blame Baldwin for everything in this movie. If Baldwin hadn't been an early takedown, it would have been a five-star TV movie. <laughs> it's not hard to see how it didn't get picked up as a series, really, isn't it? No. I think they were obviously hoping for that Miami Vice magic, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. We had to wait six years, and we got it on the big screen instead. Although, um, apparently one of the... The stumbling points was that NBC really didn't like Scott Plank, and like Michael Mann basically went to bat from him. I was like, "Really?" Michael Mann <laughs> went to bat for Scott Plank. Whoa! Yes, um, NBC didn't like him, and Michael Mann refused to replace Scott Plank as the actor if they went to series. Like that. R- really? <laughs> Scott Plank have dirt on Michael Mann? <laughs> wow! I don't know when when you take the same script and. The first two people that you show it to the next time are the two people you want to be in it, which is Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, and they both mm. stare at it like, really? What what was he thinking just a few years before? Yeah. Hoo-ha. Isn't for a few years of uh, networking and 
increasing your roll of decks will do for yeah. casting opportunities. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Yeah, but I think we've exhausted it now. Yes, just some before we get to the feedbacks from the Twitters, I did put a poll on Google Plus just to see if anyone they did actually know anything about LA Takedown. So of the 27 respondents, who thank you very much, uh, 11% have seen it, surprisingly enough, which is actually higher than I expected. Because it's quite hard uh, to get a hold of, even if you've heard mm, of it, I think. Yeah, uh, 59% never heard about it, uh, 26% know about it and haven't seen it, and one vote, mine, for whatever Manhunter's better than either of them. Uh, <laughs> Correct. As is collateral. <laughs> Oh no, Manhunter, I can remember, Collateral get lost. I go much away. prefer the visual style of Collateral to Heat. That's a, that's a podcast for another time. <laughs> that I'm film sure. has not aged well. I've not seen it since it came out. I mean, actually, when we're talking about Man, you, as a filmmaker, he's someone I'd, I'd never really want to go back to all that often. Like, Manhunter's possibly the exception, but... You know my, uh, well, you know my feelings on Manhunter, but I yeah. still think Heat is a superior film. I'd, I'd sooner watch Manhunter, but I think Heat is a superior film. But I mean, I, I enjoyed Heat well enough. Don't wanna, I don't want to give the impression that I hate it, but you know, enjoyed Insider when I watched it. I've never went back mm-hmm. to see that. Enjoyed Ali, never went back and watched that. Collateral enjoyed, never went back and seen it. Yeah. And then you get into the places that probably really didn't start enjoying it, like Miami Vice. Didn't really like it all that much. Public Enemies wasn't that impressed yeah. by mm-hmm. to the point that I'm not even caught up with Black Cat yet because it's not yeah. so mm-hmm. high up on my my radar anymore. The Insider, I did actually watch again. Just last year, um, I think, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I really like that mm. sort of film. Um, that sort of I haven't watched investigation. It in a few years, and, but yeah, it is a really, really engrossing film. And that's that's a reined in uh, Al Pacino, and it's much more enjoyable to watch than Al Pacino in a lot of other things. Maybe not so much she. I don't yeah. mind with so much in Heat, but um, he's it's just, a very. Uh, and similarly for Russell, I mean, Russell Crowe's not as guilty of uh, chewing the scenery as Al Pacino, obviously, in a day to day way, but he is still he brings a certain ego to the screen usually, yeah. and it feels like for the insider he absolutely left that at the door. The, the one thing I don't, because I just, I think Russell Crowe does a really good job in the insider, I just don't buy him as that scientist guy so in much. Um, hmm. I don't know, maybe just because there's a slight sort of, uh, when, yeah, it's a silly thing to say, but there's a slight sort of physicality to Russell Crowe that just kind of takes me out of that, but, but he's really good yeah. at him. So the insider actually I think does hold up. Yeah. It's, I, one of the best, it's one of the best films ever made in which nothing happens. <laughs> Um, I do love that sort of investigative thing, the journalism and the the court proceedings to do with it. That's good. But yeah, Black Hat I've never seen. Public Enemies I didn't like at the time. I don't think it would hold up. Miami Vice has Martin Lawrence in it, so let's just not even imagine ever watching that again. No, it doesn't. Does it? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a sorry momentary brain fart when I confused Miami Vice with Bad Boys. No, um, wow, you shot me so much. One of my contact lenses just <laughs> fell out, man. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that's very much the modern day equivocal of a monocle popping out at York, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that? Um, I do know my yeah, Colin Fowler Jeff Foxman, I didn't care much for it, but um, for some reason, just Miami Vice, uh, somewhere in my head early this evening, uh, the poster for Bad Boys and the, with, has morphed into having the words Miami Vice written over the top of the Bad Boys. And, uh, uh, and I've probably just noticed just now that, <laughs> that my brain is that's, going mad. It's a glitch in the Matrix, that one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care. So wait, does this mistake extend all the way back to the point at which you said you thought uh, Collateral was better than Heat? Are you actually saying that you think Bad Boys is better than Heat? <laughs> because if so, we may as well just end this thing now. No, no, Collateral's better than Heat, but, um, but, but they're both better than Bad Boys, is that? I'm better than Miami Vice. <laughs> oh dear. 
Um, yeah, no, it's an interesting. He's he's a, a director with a very interesting catalogue and a very definite window during which he was doing excellent work. Mm-hmm. I do remember thinking that um, Ali was really good, and I really liked Bill Smith, and I, I would be tempted to go back and see that at some point. But most of his films, they don't. I mean, they're not bad. I mean, they're very often at the very least competent, and I've enjoyed watching them. But I've never been particularly drawn to watch them again. Again, maybe I can always appreciate the craft. Yeah, yeah. That's into that. I can appreciate the professionalism that he brings to it and the style that he goes for. But a lot of them, it just doesn't seem to be my cup of tea. And that's, yeah. that's fine. Um, that. If there's one Michael Mann film that I, I might watch again any time soon, other than Manhunter, it's probably going to be Last of the Mohicans. But that's going to be for Daniel Day Lewis, not for Michael. Oh, Mann. I forget that was Michael Mann. I've never actually seen it. See, I'm you not sure if I haven't. I think that I have. There are too many Indian films from the start of the 90s, which I mean there's this mm. and Dances with Wolves. <laughs> and like, yeah. I, I hate to think that I may have confused this, bits or something. This, <laughs> this and Jabby Cushy Tabby Tenants. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, if I went back to Last Time He Could be for Daniel Day-Lewis, I think I've seen it about such a long, long time. I honestly thought that would get a laugh out of you, Drew, but never mind. Because you said Jabby Cushy Tabby Tenants. Yeah, when you said Indian films from the early 90s. Oh, right, I'm with you now. Right, Okay. <laughs> Oh dear. Never mind. The moment's gone. The moment's gone. Cut that bit out. <laughs> Aye, there you go. Right, so That's the thing that happened. That was that was that kept us entertained for an hour or so then <laughs> whether the same will apply to you, dear listener, we just can't say. Let us know. Let's go to the Twitters. Uh we're clearing some things up from the last podcast, um at Scott Sactor, Steve Nelson on the Twitter. Just clarifying that, yes, that was just a list of movies in LA that were in some way notable, not as favourites. Although he does go on to say that Cobra is so bad that it's good, and a mentor of mine, of his, at least Art Lafleur, is in it as Cobretti's boss, so therein lies his bias. Cool. And he also, a bit later on, when we asked for some other uh, films that may perhaps give a, a taste of LA, he goes on to suggest some works of Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Club, and Inherent Vice. All have a grungy LA SF Valley vibe and character, uh, which um, I think we basically avoided for this because we're surely going to be doing a PT Anderson I'd, episode at I'd some imagine point. we'll drag one yes. of those out. Yeah. Yes, that, that's going to be a real chore um, to watch PT Anderson <laughs> films again. Oh no. <laughs> oh no, we've got to watch all of our favourite films again. Oh, PT Anderson, going to have to watch Bad Boys 2 again. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But Daniel Day Lewis was great in that. <laughs> he was, as Will Smith's gun. <laughs> if there's any actor who could pull that off, very <laughs> versatile. Oh dear. And our good friends at the Magic Lantern podcast, uh, at lantern underscore cast, we think it would be remiss if we did not recommend Los Angeles Plays Itself, a brilliant doc slash visual essay about Los Angeles' place in film history. That's a good call. Meanwhile, Tengushi, uh, at Tengushi on Twitter, just decides to troll us <laughs> by suggesting again Predator 2 and Escape from LA and Battle Los Angeles. Yeah, thanks, bruv. We'll <laughs> perhaps not be... I, I might actually go back to Battle LA because I remember watching it and thinking this wasn't... This is entirely disposable, but not yeah, actually that, bad. that's exactly my memory. <laughs> it was panned at the time. I thought, actually, you know, for, for this sort of film, it's better than most, and Air Netcart was quite engaging in it. So it was... <laughs> yeah. Do you want to make Tengushi feel bad? Yes. Right, okay, see that comment about, yeah, that's the reason I quit Twitter, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Edit out the bit where we laugh there. Just leave it at that. Stony silence for 30 seconds. 
I mean, to be fair to him, he was almost dying from spontaneous human combustion the day before, so <laughs> we can maybe forgive him, but, but oh, well. nah, nah, I don't think so. We've all got a cross to bear, eh? Yeah. Um, just a moment, um, because it was directed at me rather than the Fudson Film account, but Matt Toller at M. Toller on Twitter did say that he also for a while thought that Cobra was called Stallone Cobra because of the poster, so it's not just me. <laughs> a very rare genus of Cobra. So named because Stallone discovered it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think this more or less rounds thing out with um, at Tom Fredo on Twitter. Tom Fredo, man is the best at LA. Heat captures dusk and dawn perfectly through the smog. Collateral good for the neon night. And he probably spent a year of his life in LA over the years, and no one captures it better. P.T. Anderson gets the sleazy vibe, but not the isolation. Ooh, that's, that's an interesting, interesting take. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, also, this just in literally in the last ten minutes. Um, yeah. That as I asked on Twitter, did had anybody actually did anybody actually know that Heat wasn't like their first outing of that story that it was based on it? And um, at Blake Wright's Perpetual Dumb Machine. Um, I'm not entirely sure if he's being serious here, but um, said he didn't know that. But since he's posted a gif of Mr. Spock, uh, uh, he may be taking the piss, by the way. I do think most people aren't aware of the existence of LA Tech, though, let alone having seen I think it. it is, I think it is fascinating. I think this is a really interesting little sort of mm. look at how things can evolve and mm. go wrong, even with exactly yeah. the same material. Yeah. And I don't necessarily feel we've, we've done the analysis justice, <laughs> but <laughs> it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, and... Uh, Another recommendation as well, it's another podcast you should add to your rotation if you're not the I'm the Host podcast, give that a look if you have not done mm-hmm. so already. That's your lot. Hi. Uh, so we'll be back in another 10 days with a look at films as yet to be ascertained, mainly because we've not really seen them yet. If you're very unlucky, we might be talking about The Circle, and that's not a particularly good film to be talking about. Uh, so we'll be back in 10 days. Until that time, take care of yourself and each other. Goodbye from Scott, and I'm sure it'll be a goodbye from you. Goodbye. And a goodbye from Craig. Tatty Bogles. 